3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull working somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach so Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. After a day where the Dow shed 125 points, S&P dipped 0.4%, NASDAQ declined 0.25%, we need to add another T to the toxic brew that's got people scared despite an incredible economy. It's no longer just tariffs and trade anymore. Now we've got Turkey to worry about, too. I'm talking about the sudden Turkish currency crisis and its impact on our markets. First, though, let's set some ground rules. We need to distinguish between two very different kinds of risks that often get conflated with one another. And I heard them conflated all day today, so I got some real work to do. There's systemic risk, something that could actually wreck our nation's economy. Think the Great Recession. And then there's the financial risk. Sir, sir, sir. Where our stock market might go down because of some exogenous event, like, say, the collapse of the Turkish lira, which you may not even have known about until Friday. That's what caused the weakness, both today and on Friday. And it's totally justified, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to bring the whole world to its knees. And that's what you really need to know. In short, Turkey is financial risk, not systemic risk. How do I know that? Well, a lot of different reasons, but I'll tell you one way. Because I'm one of the few people left in this business who actually traded Turkey during a different crisis. The 1993 fiasco where the Turks devalued their currency by 40% in a single month. And ultimately, needed to bring in the International Monetary Fund to stay afloat. If you pick up Confessions of a Street Addict, still available in many stores, I actually describe owning the Turkish Whirlpool and the Turkish Bank of America back then and go into how devastating it was for the emerging markets. In 1993, I was one of those people that you saw come on TV today. I said, Woo, woo, Skyfall beating the drum to anyone who'd listen. This was a crisis of immense proportions. But it wasn't, it just wasn't. As I've been trying to say on Twitter today, it wasn't. In in truth, it was only a crisis for people who own Turkish securities, own Turkish bonds, Turkish leader. And in my opinion, this current Turkish currency meltdown will ultimately, ultimately play out the same way. However, we know how these crises work. Before Turkey runs its courses in negative, we're going to hear the usual sturm and drang, where pundits want to go on record and telling us, look out, the sky is falling and the contagion, it cannot be contained. The house of pain. Someone should give these guys a reality check. Turkey has a $900 billion economy. Us? $19 trillion. But you can't ignore it. In 1997, a Thai contagion metastasized into an Asian financial crisis. In 1998, a Russian ruble contagion helped take down a firm called Long-Term Capital Management. That was a huge hedge fund, which in turn created major losses for the banks that lent to them. uh, And you know what? Caused a real fiscal crisis, at least here, to the point where the Fed had to cut rates. Uh, Could Turkey be one of these? Fed have to cut rates? Eh, I don't think so. Uh, or will it put to be one more buying opportunity like any of the more recent crises, the four major Greek tragedies, the three Italian jobs, the two Spanish sicknesses and the one Cyprus calamity? Those all turned out to be phenomenal moments to buy American stocks, not sell them. But every single one on the first, second and third day, you heard people say you got to sell. I think the Turkish torment will be more like these others. But you have to let it unfold first in the same way you have to let each new presidential tweet about tariffs or trade work the way through the stock market, generate some losses. Now, why is there any contagion to begin with? Because there are always stupid banks with few risk controls that are willing to lend to emerging markets like Turkey, chiefly in dollars. So when the dollar goes higher, like like it's been doing lately, Turkey can't pay back its creditors uh, because the exchange rates are just too unfavorable. That, in turn, makes people start worrying about bank runs, which causes weakness in the financials, which then spreads to the rest of the stock market in kind of a Rube Goldberg-like device. And that's what happened Friday. Today, stupidly, the market opened up which then brought out the sellers who didn't get a chance to do their selling on Friday. They just didn't get to escape. They took advantage of the lift to head for the hills all afternoon. But I see this whole exercise as an opportunity. I always tell you to wait for some exogenous shock to take down the whole market, and then you can pounce on the real good stocks. The problem is that when these shocks happen, like Turkey, all sorts of people come out of the woodwork and try to scare you into believing it is the end of the world. It's almost like a cottage industry of people, and they usually do it with a bunch of bogus historical analogies. So what should you be buying here? Rather than just try to debunk these people over and over again, they won't let you. They will never let themselves be debunked. So let's just talk about an action plan First, don't try to outthink these moves. Don't buy anything that can possibly be connected to Turkey, at least not at first. That means you do have to stay away from the banks, not just because bears will claim their link with Turkey. Contagion breeds a stronger dollar, and that translates into lower interest rates, which means weaker earnings for the banks. That's actually true. The industrials, well, they can be a tad uncertain, too, because of the other teas, uh, tariffs and trade. It's not like Turkey obliterates these concerns. In some ways, it intensifies them. Hence, the uh, ways, the, the weakness in the group, and I, I'm not fighting. Remember, again, I'm not choosing to fight. I don't need to because there's so many things that work. What works then? Well, first, there's some tech. I like Alphabet, and I like Amazon. I think Alphabet is taking share from Facebook when it comes to advertising, and the company will soon be monetizing Waymo. It's autonomous driving business. That's a fourth quarter thing. Amazon's all about retail, the cloud, and advertising. I'll give you more on that later. Second, real obvious, healthcare. Here I like uh, the health insurers, chiefly United Health Group, owned by the Chapel Trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Centene, we've had on Michael Neidorf many times. Umana, uh, which we just profiled. Uh, Umana, which is a part of the health maintenance that we continue to profile. And then let's remember the hospitals, HCA, which we profiled just last week. So hospitals and health insurers, all right? And I'm indifferent to which ones you pick. These are all domestic, they're crushing the numbers and their stocks rarely come down. Exogenous shocks are just about your only opportunities to buy this cohort into weakness. They don't sell off, so use it. Third, I think the largely domestic retailers will still work, even though they're up a lot, particularly the discounters. Here I'm thinking about Burlington and Dollar General, but also Kohl's because of its tie-in with Amazon, where you can return Amazon's merchandise by walking through Kohl's store. might see something you like. Perhaps Macy's is ready to break out, too, something J.P. Morgan's Matthew Boss recommended today on Halftime with Scott Wobner. You remember my game plan last week? Macy's reports at the end of the week. Maybe it's going to be good. Don't overlook the apparel cohort. Michael Kors was extraordinary last week. Ralph Lauren's been on a tear. Tapestry reports tomorrow. That's the old coach. It fits. So does Nike. Fourth, medical devices and diagnostics. And here I want you to consider an Abbott Labs, a Thermo Fisher, Illumina, Intuitive Surgical, Baxter, Becton Dickinson, Medtronic, or last week's guest, Perkin Elmer. I really like that stock if it'll come in. There's no Turkish sensitivity here and not much about tariffs or trade. Fifth, I really do like the domestic cables and telcos. I'm not just cribbing from my friend Joe Taranova this morning, this morning at halftime. I think T-Mobile, if it could come down, it hasn't come down since it reported, that's a winner. You see that uh, John Lesnar just tweeted that the eight is available. I paid a lot for the eight. Maybe I should have gone to him. Um, I think that he could that, get through that Sprint deal. By the way, now that Disney's done fighting with Comcast, the parent coming to this network, you can buy either or both. Stephanie Link says buy Disney down here. I agree with her. Verizon's a solid yielder. Six. The rails. And I've got to tell you, this group never comes in. All aboard! Whenever you hear some company talking about the rising cost of freight, and don't they all, that's money in the bank for these companies. Again, Agnostic, Union Pacific, Kansas City Southern, Norfolk Southern, CSX. Go whichever one is brought down by Turkey. You know when these people come on the chat they say, oh, Turkey currency, take a look at one of the rails. Seven, this group, I am completely enamored of cybersecurity. The issue keeps intensifying as we get more state-sponsored cyberterrorism, as we learned last week from Udi Makati, the excellent CEO of CyberArk. Hey, did you see that one? Uh, 52-week high. I also like Proofpoint. All right, that's for email security. And then Palo Alto Networks as a general defense against hackers. Finally, number eight, the redoubtable fintech or financial technology stocks. This group's all about Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Square, and it, Hey, stay tuned. We got another one for you, a new one later in the show. Now, there are other less visible plays, but you need to buy stocks that are being brought down by S&P 500 sell programs, because that's what the hedge funds bang down when they want to bet against the contagion. Let the algos work for you. There are dozens of one-off stocks that you finally get a chance to buy. Hey, I'll throw some at you. Kellogg McCormick. Remember when they were on recently? How about Spotify? How many times can I bang, you know, bang, just bang, bang, bang bang the drum on that one? And then, by the way, Take-Two Interactive is so right. Strauss-Selnick. But the bottom line is you need to use a sell-off like this current turkey-related tumble to do some buying into weakness when the weakness percolates. The people of Turkey have my sympathy, but there's no systemic risk here, which means it's safe to take advantage of the fear that's being sown and pick up some of these high-quality sectors, best of breed within them, at ridiculously discounted prices. Let's go to Preston Arizona, please. Preston! Phoenix, Arizona. boo yet to you, Kramer. All How the way doing? to Tacoma. What's up there, party? You guys, you guys crushed the Phillies. What's going on? A hey, uh, question for you pertaining to company air lease, ticker AL, uh, they seem to be a leader in the aircraft leasing sector. They had another great quarter. The revenue and earnings seem to be on track. Almost all their aircraft are leased through 2021. Um, just last month, they ordered 78 new airplanes from Boeing. Um, question is, with the uptick in the economy and passenger travel growth increasing globally, and all the positives that this company seems to have going for it, do you see AL, as a company worth investing in. I have to tell you, Preston, it's all over the map. I mean, if we suddenly read that the Chinese are canceling orders to Boeing, even though you're absolutely right, they're sold through for a long time, this stock goes down. I've seen it time and again. I don't want you to go there. They are very smart people, but it's not the right stock for this environment. All right, look, I don't think there's a systemic risk with the crisis in Turkey. I'm probably one of the few who said that today, certainly on Twitter. But it means you should be considering buying into the weakness. The high-quality stocks that are within each one of these sectors. Oh, man, tonight, add brinks to the list of companies that can clean up in the pot business and also in fintech. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO to find out how, and we got some big news. Then how is the price line of old, the once undisputed beast of breed, not just best, but beast in the travel sector, giving such a downbeat forecast as Booking holdings? What's that all about? I'm investigating. And after an early rally last week, Dropbox fell back to earth, or at least down 10% on Friday. What's with that? I'm helping you make sense of the madness. So stick with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag madtweets. Send Jim an email to MadMoney at CNBC.com, or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something?
0: at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: When cash is king, this company is on guard. But Brinks rolls out more services than just their iconic trucks. With the stock stalled, after a key acquisition, can Brinks help keep your portfolio
3: safe. After a huge rally, sometimes the stock will pause for a breather while it digests its gains. What is the recent trajectory of the Brinks Company, BCO for you, home gamers, the cash management business that you most likely recognize from its big armored cars? At the end of May, BRINKS ANNOUNCED THAT IT'S BUYING DUNBAR ARMOR, ONE OF THEIR MAIN COMPETITORS, AND THE STOCK ROCKETED UP 16% ON THE NEWS. It, YOU KNOW WHAT? In A NICE SURPRISE, THAT DEAL JUST CLOSED TODAY. I think it could be an upward catalyst for a stock that's been trading sideways, even as the company reported a blowout quarter at the end of July. Just a terrific top and bottom line beat. So let's take a closer look with Doug Perch. He's the president and CEO of the Brinks Company, who's created a tremendous amount of value here in his two years as CEO. Get a better sense of where his company's headed now that the Dunbar deal has closed. Mr. Perch, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations. This is a very huge deal. I did not think it was going to close today, so we got a nice bit of surprise. What's it mean for the company?
1: Well, it's exciting because it's a great company, that is Dunbar, right. combining with a great business in Brinks. 90 years plus of three generations of Dunbar. Right. A great reputation with employees, great reputation with customers, combining with Brinks. We're excited as can be about that. We think with combination, we'll create great value for our shareholders as well as great value for our customers.
3: Right, you'll be number one That's in right.
1: cash management. Will you keep both names? Uh, we will see where that goes, but chances are it will migrate to a single name. Synergies? There will be significant synergies. We've already talked about cost synergies in the press release we just put out this evening. We we read those again. So cost synergies are very significant over the next two to three years, Uh, 40 to 45 million in cost synergies, which are very significant on a business of this size.
3: Now, you know we got involved and started recommending your stock when we saw that there was was an inflection we couldn't figure it out. It was actually your management came in and what you've done. Tell us how you managed to get the growth here for a company that's been around since the Civil War.
1: That's great. 160 plus years, you're exactly right. Great brand in the business. And I think uh, the company didn't have the leadership, uh, the focus, uh, the strategies in place that were probably needed. Uh, I'm very pleased that I had the opportunity to, to come in and be able to uh, work with the management. We have a great management team that's done a great job and really rose to the challenge, if you will, that we are in now. Put a new strategy together, which we rolled out uh, March of last year. Uh, and we've been aggressively implementing, executing on that strategy, and you see the results. The oh. results are 30-plus percent growth on the operating income for the last six to eight quarters.
3: No, it's been terrific. I think one of the uh, misperceptions, and I shared it, too, because I'm so close to the visas and the MasterCards. Yeah. I like that, hey, we're going toward a cashless society. Well, it turns out that it's not just that plastic is doing uh, well, but cash is doing better in some ways. The growth is amazing. The,
1: the, the growth is great in cash, and it has been for years. <laughs> How can that
3: be? Last
1: year, cash be? circulation in the U.S. alone was 6%. That's 6% on top of at least 5% growth over the last 20 years. And what that means, in fact, as an investor, I'd sit and say, well, what does that mean to me? Well, that's better growth, substantially better growth than GDP. And if I can get a business invested in that's substantially higher than GDP growth, it makes a heck of a lot of sense to do that. But you know, one of the big things, Jim, that's very interesting about this are competitors. As you're suggesting in the digital you know the fintech space are the ones that come back and say cash is good it is growing and really? it's going to be there for quite a while right. in fact paypal have said two things one of them is when they're in an interview who's your biggest competitor cash 85 percent of total payments globally says cash. are cash yep. that's a good example
3: now one of the things that shocked me when i'm going over your numbers is that mexico's gigantic for you
1: it is why it's growing very nicely well, there's two reasons for that. One of them, and the biggest macro, is is that it's very much of a cash-driven society. Right. Uh, on a global basis, cash is 80-85 percent. In Mexico, it's probably 90 plus percent. So it's very cash-driven from that standpoint. Second is that, from our standpoint as a company, it had been undermanaged, and we didn't have a good relationship with the unions that we work with down there. Since then, we've developed a great relationship over this two years as part of our strategic plan process with Mexico. Specific initiatives to reinvest, mm-hmm. as well as to work with the unions there, uh, to develop better strategies and better directions. And it's working. It's working very well. Top-line growth is double-digit. Yeah, and then on top of that, we've almost doubled our margins over that period of time.
3: I think it's important because you guys bring it up. Uh, we have a lot of news about currencies today. Uh, it looks like that Argentina has continued along this progression that you don't – that's not necessarily good for the company. But you keep saying, don't worry. It's not going – this is a, up to – interest rates are 45 percent now. But you're okay on that kind of
1: thing. Well, Jim, what we need to Remember, all of these things that we see about FX rates and right. how the, a lot of the uh, developing economies are in tough position on it, we are a translational FX risk. That's it. Not transactional. Right. Not transactional. It, we're not related to what the cost of plastics right. or, or, or petroleum or anything else is. And all of our businesses are local. So the local right. business, whether it be in Argentina or Mexico, our costs are local, our pricing is local, right. and it's all based on that. Argentina has been high <laughs> inflation for years. Right. Uh, for years. We know how to operate it. They know how to operate it. The structure's in place as inflation goes up in the country. Uh, the pricing goes up along with that, and the structure fits along with it. All so right. we're very comfortable
3: with All it. All right, last question uh, cannabis. We know that the banking system is not really equipped to handle all these stores that are opening up. We've had a bunch of these people on. Some of these places are doing $10 million per unit. Mm-hmm. They can't afford to keep that cash overnight. But I know you want to go only where it's legal, but yes. that is a totally cash-based retail business, isn't it? it? It's very much. I wouldn't say it's totally,
1: but it's very <laughs> highly cash. They have ATMs all over that the place.
3: <laughs> but I think what's
1: important about this is we as Brinks, both domestically, other countries and globally, we're in the best position. We're the largest player globally as in high-value transportation. Right. That's one piece on it. The second piece on it is the cash piece. We're in the best position for that as well. So I think a good test of this will be in Canada. Right. Uh, Canada is talking about a lot of, uh, well, it's going at, right. on a national basis. And you'll be ready. To be, it will, and we'll be ready, and we'll be, we're talking with some of the largest players there today to manage all of their deliveries as well as their cash management event.
3: Well, I think that this Dunbar closing is going to be the catalyst that is needed. This is one growth company. After many years, one of the oldest companies we follow, and it's a growth one. That's Doug Percy, He's the CEO of Brinks BCO. Boy, I like this story. Mad Money's back after the break.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express.
2: That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
3: I keep telling you that this is a stock picker's market, that it's not just about the S&P trading in and out, but what does it actually mean? Simple. It means that companies in the same industry that do roughly the same thing have stocks that can move in completely opposite directions. In a word, it's all about differentiation. This is new for this market. This is a market that rewards you for being able to look at two very similar companies and decide, hey, that one's better than the other one. Exhibit A, look at the online travel agents. Lately, this group has been giving you some major differentiation. Less than three weeks ago, we got results from Expedia, the number two player, and its stock exploded higher after a fabulously better-than-expected quarter. Then last Thursday, we heard from Booking Holdings, which sounds like the place where the police put you when they're taking your fingerprints and the mugshots, but it's actually the artist formerly known as Priceline, the big dog in the online cohort. Even though the actual quarter was fine, booking's guidance was remarkably tepid. So the stock sold off dramatically. It plunged from 2,045 down to 1,942 in a single session. Darn things continued to get hammered, falling to 1,854 as of today, and that is a decline of more than 9%. It is a... The house of pain. So what the heck happened here? How is it that booking holdings, the price line of old? The company that used to be the undisputed best to breed in the group is now giving us such a downbeat forecast. At the same time, that its closest rival, Expedia, is incredibly positive and upbeat about the future. Last week, I explained why Expedia has been such a huge winner. The company's made a ton of investments in its own technology, as well as expanding the business overseas. And lately, these efforts have begun to pay off big time. Expedia's new CEO, Mark Elkestrom, uh has been doing a terrific job. Uh, I think the stock's got a lot more room to run. I really like the home-away business, too. So what went wrong with its biggest competitor, Booking Holdings, a.k.a. Priceline? And something did go wrong here. This is a nice object lesson. The company is pretty much the godfather of online travel. It's uh, the Vito Corleone of hotel rooms and airline tickets. But we need to ask ourselves if it's the young, healthy Vito Corleone of Robert De Niro and Godfather Part Two in flashback sequences, or is it the old, ready-to-keel-over Vito Corleone of Marlon Brando in the original? Hmm. Booking changed its name earlier this year because Priceline is now just one piece of the mosaic that also includes Booking.com, Kayak, Agoda.com, RentalCars.com, and OpenTable, uh, which is just an agglomeration of a whole bunch of things. Booking.com is actually the heart of the business. You may not have used it here in the United States. I've used it a couple times, but you know what? This is really a European brand. It does a huge business over there. So where did these guys go wrong? OK, before we start casting blame, let me make one thing crystal clear. This stock has been a very good performer long term. I do not want to slight that. It's been a monster. I used to like it all the time. After the past five years, Booking Holdings has given you a 94% gain. And that's far outpacing the 67% run in the S&P 500 of the same period. Hey, that's a good move. Even after a severe pullback last Thursday, the darn thing is still up 7% for the year. However, in recent months, the stock has really lost its mojo falling roughly 375 points, or 17% from its March highs. If you're looking for them, uh, it, the first real signs of trouble started popping up about a year ago when Booking reported last August. company posted a Bookings, Booking, Bookings shortfall and gave conservative guidance. In November, they beat their lowered expectations slightly, but the guidance remained cautious. And once again, the stock got hit. That November quarter is when we started, we began hearing a new line from management. CEO Glenn Fogel explained that they were shifting their marketing budget away from the web, in particular Google, which has gotten too expensive. Instead, they'll divert money to TV. Okay, so get this straight out of Google well, to some degree, and then into TV. Now, Fogel admitted this might cause the company's growth to take a near-term hit, but he figured the investment would be worth it long-term. Still coming into the new year, though, the stock rallied hard along with the averages. Then, after the big market-wide sell-off in February, the newly rebranded Booking reported a gigantic earnings beat, solid guidance for the next quarter. Fogel talked about how well the new marketing plan was working, saying the company was getting a better return on investment from its ads. In short, the earlier slowdown seemed to be abating, And the big headwind everyone was worried about? A possibly misspent marketing budget? Well, it looked like a nothing burger. The stock exploded higher on the news. So far, so good, right? I know, I thought, wow, hey, maybe this guy's really got a right game plan here. So uh, how did we end up where we are now, though? First, the escalating trade war rhetoric sure didn't help. Not good for a travel company that does so much business overseas, and the stock began to slip. Then the dollar started getting strong, which is bad news for American businesses to get most of their sales from overseas. Certainly hurts foreigners trying to come here, too. Still, there was a ton of optimism going into the May quarter. Then Booking delivers a pretty good quarter with a not-so-hot forecast for the next earnings period. On the conference call, Fogel tried to sound optimistic, but in retrospect, he seemed kind of defensive about his controversial marketing program. Remember, that's you know, less money on Google, more on uh, TV. The stock plunged 5% in a day, but then it stabilized in the 2000s. Investors were less optimistic, but they weren't quite ready to give up on this one yet. So when Booking flubbed it again last week, we saw widespread capitulation. There was a lot riding on these numbers. Expedia just shot the lights out. Booking holdings needed to prove itself. And what happens? We get another top and bottom line beat. Heck, they earned more than 20 bucks a share when the analysts were only looking for 17 a change. But this time the forecast for the next quarter is particularly grim. What's clear is that bookings are slowing. Yet Glenfo will blame the weather and the World Cup. Before he admitted the new marketing strategy has contributed to the slowdown. I didn't like that. Part of the problem, the company scaled back its online ads without ramping up its TV ads fast enough. But the problem here is straightforward. Whatever. It doesn't matter how you slice it, frankly. Booking's growth is slowing. Whether you're looking at room nights booked or total bookings or revenue. And based on management's guidance, the slowdown is going to get much worse. They just delivered 15% bookings growth. Now they're looking for six to nine percent next quarter. They posted 17% revenue growth. Now they're talking about six to nine percent revenue growth next quarter. And the midpoint of their earnings forecast is two and a half dollars below what Wall Streets expect. This is even worse than it looks because these are ugly numbers for the third quarter, which is the most important time of the year for travel companies. Everybody goes on vacation at the end of summer. And the kicker, management was totally tone deaf. Rather than admitting they need to fix these problems, they basically blame the quarter's weakness on people in England, France, Belgium staying home to watch the World Cup. Jeez, guys, I mean, maybe this is what happens when you shift your marketing budget from Google to television. So where can booking holdings go from here? Here's the core problem. When booking booking decided to reallocate its ad spending, sacrificing sales in order to boost profitability, they basically opted to become a value stock rather than a growth stock. Now, that's my view, but that's what I think is happening here. And the thing is, investors pay more for growth stocks. That's why Expedia sells for 21 times next year's earnings estimates, and booking sells for less than 19 times next year's numbers. So let me give you the bottom line of what's a complicated story, but so many of you have asked me about this. I had to explain. At the moment, Booking Holdings is neither fish nor fowl. It doesn't know if it's a growth stock or a value stock. As long as that's the case, I think you should avoid it. Stick with Expedia, which is doing great with a growth story that's very easy for investors to understand. Let's go to Gale in Connecticut. Gail.
2: Booyah, Eagles, man.
3: Yes, let's go birds. Oh,
2: considering the Supreme Court PAPSA ruling, I'm wondering what company is in the best position to be a moneymaker with legalized gambling, could it be Caesars Entertainment?
3: No. Uh, we have said that it's pinnacle entertainment, PNK. It avoids a lot of the issues that we have also from, uh, from China, and it's got a decent balance sheet, China being be Macau. So let's not outthink uh, it. PNK is the way to go. And thank you for the go birds. And, yes, I'm not worried about Alshon Jeffrey. I just waited on Twitter about that. He'll be good to go. Maybe not the first couple games. There you go. There's my ESPN note for today. All right. Until Booking Holdings figures out whether it's a growth play or a value play, we have an easy call here. We're going to stick with Expedia. Much more mad money ahead. Dropbox certainly stayed true to its name last Friday, dropping 10% of earnings. Is it a buying opportunity or is it a red flag? Then Apple may have won the race to a trillion bucks, but could Amazon be hot on its trail? I'm giving my take on what's ahead for the company. And your calls. is rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Earnings season is the hardest, most trying time of the year for investors, which is why I am so glad that it's pretty much over. With so many companies reporting all at once, it's hard to keep your facts straight. But once the smoke clears, there's one major unforced error that people make quarter after quarter. They assume the action in a stock is an actual accurate reflection of how the underlying company is doing. This is an important lesson that I'm going to teach you tonight. I need you to understand this. This is one of the most, one of those counterintuitive things that seems like it should be straightforward. When a company reports and stock goes up, you figure the quarter must have been good. When it reports and the stock goes down, well, you figure it must have been bad, right? After all, it's not like the invisible hand of the free market makes mistakes. Spare me. The stock market's constantly making mistakes, and the action in individual stocks can be highly misleading. Every earnings period, there's always some high-quality company, usually more than one, that gets wrongfully convicted of doing badly just because its stock sells off at the end of the quarter on the announcement. Sell, 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 sell. This time around, it happened to drop by. Dropbox, the online storage and digital collaboration platform. I've been a fan of Dropbox since it came public in March. But last week, its stock went kind of crazy. From Monday through Thursday, Dropbox screamed higher, climbing from $30 to $34 and change. 30 to $34, keep that in mind. However, the, this whole move was in anticipation of the quarter they reported on Thursday night. Buyers stampede, stampeded into the stock, assuming the results had to be great. And you know what? They were. Dropbox did report a great quarter. Let me repeat that. Dropbox reported a great quarter. But the stock's monster 15% run in the previous four days had raised the bar, meaning you were also dealing with great expectations. And much like reading the Dickens novel of the same name, great expectations can be a real struggle. So while Dropbox initially rallied to 36 bucks in after-hours trading, looking real smart, it quickly gave back those gains and ultimately saw its shares plunge nearly 10% on Friday. Then today, it shed another 6%, with the stock actually going back below 30 bucks Now, it's now back where it was trading before last week's big run-up. Because of that breakdown, many people are therefore assuming that Dropbox must have dropped the ball. It must be horrible, right? They figure something must have gone wrong with the quarter, or else the stock wouldn't have been crushed. I'm telling you, that is wrong. You had a ton of people crowding into Dropbox last week, basically chasing the momentum and betting on insanely out-of-the-world numbers. When the stock ended up going lower, many of those recent buyers threw in the towel. They were hoping for an easy win, and they didn't get one. That's the story here. What well, makes me so confident that Dropbox is doing well. well? Let's go over the numbers. Why don't we actually deal with the fundament here? company reported a 5-cent earnings beat off of a 6-cent basis, higher-than-expected sales, up 27% year-over-year. Dropbox saw its gross margin. What it makes, after subtracting the cost of goods sold, expand by an incredible 780 basis points to 74.5%. And that, in itself, is an amazing figure. But the key metrics here are users. Dropbox's whole business model is about giving away a free version of its service in the hope that those free customers will eventually migrate, be willing to pay up for more functionality. They have more than a half billion registered free users. That's a huge pool of people to pull uh, paying customers from. And it's one of the reasons I've been such a believer in this story. Sure enough, Dropbox now has 11.9 million paid subscribers. That's up 20% year-over-year and higher than the analysts were expecting. Meanwhile, their average revenue per user increased by nearly 5%. Just so you know, this is the same subscription model used by Kramer Fave's Spotify, which keeps going higher and higher without getting any recognition other than from here. Now, on top of that, Dropbox's management gave bullish guidance for both the next quarter and the full year. In short, there was a lot to like about this quarter. So then why the heck did the stock get hit with such a dramatic sell-off? I don't want to be glibber. Dropbox wasn't perfect. We learned that the company's chief operating officer, Dennis Woodside, would be stepping down in September, with his responsibilities being split between two other executives. Normally, this wouldn't be a huge deal. We care about CEO and CFO departures, but a chief operating officer is kind of less important. Remember, though, Dropbox had run up dramatically going into the quarter, which meant that potential sellers were looking for any excuse to ring the register. It didn't help that CEO Drew Halston, whom I liked very much, kicked off the conference call by making a big fuss about how much Woodside would be missed. It was so compelling, I actually started wondering, hey, wait a second. I mean, maybe this company's going to be hurt really badly because of his departure. Until I thought it through and recognized how strong the business is. On top of that, there were some nits to pick with the actual quarter. The company's net cash from operating activities up 30% year-over-year was a tiny bit light versus what the analysts were looking for. Dropbox's free cash flow came in higher than expected, but they didn't raise their full year free cash flow forecast. Was management simply being conservative, or did they have reason, some reason to think that the cash flow might be a little underwhelming in the second half? I think it was the former. But if you're looking for flaws, this is another one. Finally, Dropbox only raises full-year operating margin guidance by 50 basis points. Again, you might have expected a bigger boost to the forecast. Maybe this means they're planning to spend more money in the second half. However, you really have to twist yourself into a pretzel to stretch any of these issues into serious problems. In short, Dropbox reported a great, albeit not quite perfect quarter. There was one legitimate reason for the stock to get slammed that I could find. But it has nothing to do with Dropbox's actual operating business. Remember, this company came public in late March. Normally, after an IPO, there's a six-month lockup on insider selling. And often when the lockup ends, that insider selling can really hurt. Last week, Dropbox shortened the lockup period. Rather than ending on September 18th, it's now going to end on August 23rd. That is just 10 days from now. Now, I don't think it really matters whether they end the lockup in two weeks or six weeks. But for people who just bought the stock going into the quarter, the impending lockup expiration probably came as a jarring surprise. Sell, 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 sell. At the end of the day, though, Dropbox sold off after the quarter because the stock was inundated with hot money. The darn thing had rallied for nine straight sessions. So when they actually reported, these hot money guys just sold on the news. And look, this has happened before. As Eric Johnson, my colleague at TheStreet.com, and wow, what a great tech writer he is, points out, Dropbox saw its stock surge 40% in the span of just a few days in June, with well, nothing more than vague buyout speculation. And then in less than two weeks, Dropbox gave up that entire move. The stock is a wild trader. So what do you do with it here? Look, I'm still a believer in this story, maybe more so down here. Dropbox has a terrific subscription-based business model. You know I think it's a subscription economy. We talk about that with Teen Zhu, who wrote that fantastic book about the subscription economy. People use their plat- – he's from Zora. People use the, these guys' platform uh, and then love it so much that they convince their bosses to adopt Dropbox at work. I use it. You probably use it. That's why I think you have to use any weakness here as a buying opportunity. However, getting the lockup on, on insider selling ends in a week and a half. You might want to scale into the stock slowly, put on a small position here, then buy some more if it gets hit harder after the lockup expiration. Bottom line, please don't be freaked out by the post-earnings breakdown in the stock of Dropbox. The darn thing ran up too much going into the quarter, so it was due for a pullback. It's just that simple. I think Dropbox remains a buy, although I'd like it even more at a lower level, which you might get when that lockup expiration expires. In just ten short days, we get that expiration. Be ready, And Money's back in the break. It is time. It's over the light round. What do I And then the light round is over. Are you ready, ski? That is over the light round. Question: I'm going to start with Jerry in Utah. Jerry. A big Rocky Mountain movie to you, Jim. I appreciate all the great books that you've written. My favorite is Confessions of a Street Addict. Jim, I'd like your opinion on me buying shares of a cruise company. The one I've been looking at is Carnival Lines. Do you think it's the best to breed? I think it's good, but I think Norwegian has better growth, and I think that the uh, proof is in the pudding. The numbers we just saw from Norwegian were excellent. I need to go to David, New Jersey. David! Uh, good evening, Jim. I'm calling tonight about MTW,
0: Manitowoc Company.
3: I, I, 40- it, it is unfathomable that that stock can be as low as it is. I'm not buying it. $800 million. If you can put it away, I suggest you do so. How about John in New Jersey? John. George, I, I'll, make it, I'll make it up to you. Thank you, George. Uh, I mean, it. What's I'll that? make it up to you. John, you're on with Jim. Yes. Yeah, go ahead, and you're up. You're up, man. Jim Kramer, yeah. old John from the Jersey Shore, up to, down the road from where you live. Absolutely, Jim, man. Old, We've got ocean uh, Grove's finest. What's up? Uh, okay, I'm uh, an old uh, admirer and uh, mentor of yours, going back to the radio shows. Uh geez, long time ago. How can I All right, uh help? All right, your opinion on Tootsie Roll? Had it for years, bought it. In Everyone keeps thinking, John, that one day they're going to get a bid. They've never gotten a bid. They don't really have a lot of growth. Without a bid, the stock is just going to stay right here and flatline. What can I say? I can't recommend stocks on a takeover basis if I don't think the earnings are exploding. I don't see them exploding. Let's go to Edward in Georgia, please. Edward. Hey, Jim. I bought Green Sky when they IPO'd in May. They beat earnings. They confirmed their outlook for the year, but the stock just keeps falling. Do I hold or sell? You know what? It makes no sense to me if this thing just keeps getting hilled. I I, I have to do work on it. I mean, I, I don't know. It seemed like an ideal fintech name when it came public. It's not working. Let me do work. I need to go to Rich in New Jersey. Rich! Hey, Jim, and greetings from Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Oh, my. Philadelphians love Stone Harbor. What's up? Thank you. I'd appreciate your take, Jim, on universal display, which oh, is simple my. O-L-E-D. Oh, you know, it, it, see, it, it falls and rallies with Apple and what Apple's doing. It's too hard for me these days. And that, leads and up of the Lightning Round!
2: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: Apple may have won the race to a trillion-dollar valuation. But Amazon's not very far behind, currently just under $925 billion. Last week, there was a moment where it looked like Apple might surrender its perch when a state-controlled Chinese newspaper strongly implied that the iPhone maker would be in the crosshairs if President Trump didn't relent on his tariffs. But on Friday, Apple CEO Tim Cook made a pilgrimage to Donald Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, to have dinner with the president and his wife. First Lady quickly tweeted, and I quote, "Proud of the job he is doing at Apple. Big innovations and investments in the USA that positively impacts our economy." End quote. I took the comments, the comments, kind of as a let's just say a virtual line in the sand, meaning that the Chinese should think twice about going after Apple. That, along with the epic buyback, helped push the stock to a new all-time high today. Remember, the repurchase program has been a huge difference here. When Apple reported, its CFO, Luca Maestri, sat down for an interview with me and Josh Lipton, where he made it clear that he tries to buy the stock aggressively when it's down, because he believes it's undervalued. I don't think fears of a Chinese boycott deterred the largest buyback in the history of the universe. But the one to watch right now, the stock that could, that could place in horse racing parlance is Amazon. This is truly a dazzling company that gives you so many different ways to win. Not that long ago, the president was pounding away at the mistaken notion that Amazon was abusing the U.S. Postal Service, taking advantage of what he viewed as a sweetheart contract. The president's heavy-handed tweeting drove the stock from the 1500s down to the 1300s. But Amazon has been going pretty much straight up since then. The incredible thing is that this move's being powered by three different boosters, not one. It's powered by retail, the cloud, and advertising. Earlier this year, Jeff Bezos revealed that Amazon Prime had more than 100 million members. That is a shocking revelation for men who almost never gives you any specifics if you could avoid it. That figure showed you just how entrenched the company is in retail. Not that we really needed more proof. When you consider the rapid growth rate, Amazon's retail business could be worth nearly as much as the whole entire company is right now. let's call it $800 billion. You want to be conservative, 800 billion. What about the cloud? Okay, lately we've been hearing a number of stories about how Amazon Web Services is pulling away from Google Cloud and Microsoft's Azure, it's two major competitors. I think it's not so much that Amazon's pulling away, it's more that they've got a fantastic lead and they keep maintaining that lead no matter what their rivals do. I think the web services division all by itself could easily be worth, are you ready? $500 billion. So now we're up to $1.3 trillion. And then along comes a piece of research today, very thoughtful from Piper. It is titled Amazon Advertising Profits Likely to Exceed AWS, that's Amazon Web Services, by 2021. Exceed. It's an incredible note. The key takeaway they think that Amazon's ad business could be worth. A hundred and fifty to a hundred and ninety billion dollars because it's growing so fast. Piper sees it as an I quote, massive driver of current and future profitability, end quote. They're talking about ad revenues doubling from eight billion to sixteen billion by twenty twenty. A revenue stream that's barely into the stock price right here. Add that all up, and on some of the parts basis, you could make a credible case that Amazon should be worth trillion. And that is up substantially from where it's now trading. Now, we know that Apple's growth comes from its ecosystem and its subscription revenues. These are accelerating, keeping its market capitalization ahead of Amazon's for the moment. However, after reading the Piper piece, I think you got a green light to pay more for Amazon, which, unlike Apple, has no real beef with China. In short, I'm betting Apple won't be the only company in the trillion dollar club for much longer, because I think Amazon's about to join right in. Stick with Kramer. American Green is back tonight with an all-new episode. See how a crooked New York City cop protects and serves himself. Cashing in with a high-tech burglary crew who terrorizes homes and businesses to the tune of million. Hey, you want a personal note about this one? I can't wait for it because it's produced by my friend and colleague, Scott Cohn. Way to go, Scott! Okay, we have Turkish turmoil, and it's not over because people are going to foment more and more negativity and use it as a reason to do some selling. It's called profit-taking, but there's not systemic risk. You've got my list of what to buy. Let the market bring them down to you. We usually don't get these opportunities, and when we do, we should be thinking, take them. Don't run from the mall. Run to the mall and get the best stuff. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you tomorrow.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,